you're sat in a, a workplace where you have a very high salary and you look around the office and there's only one person there who's not white, of course you start to cover yourself in these kind of uh, just anti-racist politics to the point of virtue signaling. It's not like they're actually doing much politics in actuality, right? It's, it's just this kind of virtue signaling. It's apologism basically for themselves and then it's this idea of looking a certain way or adopting a certain lifestyle. Look, it's the same way that on the left now, you know, I hear about straight weddings where a man marries a woman, but they say it's not a straight wedding because the woman will conveniently say that she's a they, them. It's a way of saying, look, we're sorry we're boring heterosexuals. But I mean, it's fine to be a boring heterosexual. It's much worse to pretend you're not, right? If that's, if that's who you are, have a nice wedding. Welcome to the New Flesh podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike and joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, how are you? I'm good, comrade. We are talking uh, communism, socialism, Marxism today with our very special guest, Jen Isaacson. We are. Jen is, what a, you know, I hate to be, say this because it's a bit basic, but what a, what a wonderful energy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> She's a lovely person. So anyway, uh, enjoy. Well, we always tell you the truth here at The New Flesh, and the truth is we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked or perhaps one you didn't. We do live in a democracy after all. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. Now. On with the show. Jen Isaacson is co-host of the podcast Red Femme, a graduate of the school of the London School of Economics. She is currently a research assistant at the University College London. Jen, welcome to the New Flesh. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No worries. Well, I now I have to apologize because, you know, I've, I've listened to your podcast and you and Hannah are, are very intelligent and I love your back and forth. This is going to be a little bit more like uh, a one of your 101 tutorials that you teach. So it's it's going to feel like you're at work a bit, but you're not going to pay. Yeah, okay. So your, your podcast, Red Femme, uh, it's, it's doing really well. Uh, I've checked it out. I enjoy it a lot. Can, can you tell us about the project, how you started it, why you started it? Yeah, so I guess it was that uh, we kind of thought that there was a space for it on the left that a lot of the left have been swept away with uh, gender ideology and the, there was a certain need for hopefully a kind of sane, sensible people on the left to clarify that none of this, you know, has much to do with, I don't want to say the old left, but socialism, Marxism, materialism particularly, and the postmodern idealism really is the opposite of all of that, is the opposite of thinking in a materialist way or having materialist analysis. And we would have conversations about this and then we kind of just thought we need to start recording them because other people might be interested and it might serve a purpose to kind of fill fill that gap, basically. So would you mind telling us a bit about, about your own political journey and, and, and how you, you came to, to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So... I suppose initially, um, when I was an undergrad at university, uh, I was kind of eventually became um, a socialist. I was just sort of agreed with general left-wing ideas to do with, you know, at the time being against the Iraq war and, and supporting free education. And then the kind of people I was around at university um, that kind of cared about things on campus, like, you know, the nursery being shut down or kind of private companies coming in to take over the the catering and, you know, people that worked at the university for decades getting sacked uh, and replaced. And then um, I always had this sort of um, kind of eye on feminism. I remember being part of the Feminist Society and I did things like, you know, when I was 21, I remember with a, a group of other young women chaining ourselves to a Miss University contest and um, getting a bike lock and locking the door shut, which they had to get a fire engine to come and machine, what was it called? Like a machine saw? 
you know, the, yeah, chainsaw, that's it. They had to come I've got very soft hands, Jen. I don't, I don't know anything about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, me neither. But this bike lock was like $9.99. It certainly did its job. Uh, but I always had this question of, well, f- feminism, like what's the strategy? They, they don't seem to have a strategy. And I was very interested in socialism for that reason, because, of course, there's all these competing um, forms of strategy and analysis. And then I suppose, yeah, I always just used to say, oh, I'm just a socialist and, and that's it. And then around 2014, I started to notice this uptick in um, you know, gender identity uh, claims and politics. And the only people that made sense about it were radical feminists that I could see anyway. And so I started to think, well, you know, these people can kind of see through through all of this. And then I kind of became closer to feminism. And then from about 2017... I guess that's when I was, um, the, the the movement here kind of kicked off and I was around uh, radical feminism. And for a while, I, I mean, I didn't quite realise the waters I was in, but I was kind of um, part of really the kind of separatist quarters of feminism. And then sort of observing that for a couple of years became um, completely uh, disillusioned uh, with that and kind of clocking it for what it was, that it was more about kind of being part of a high demand group and just things that that weren't true like I don't know the idea that Karl Marx never wrote anything that he wrote because what he wrote was good and a man could never produce anything good it must have been his wife and I would sit there thinking but we've got the letters (laughs) and we know that he has really messy bad handwriting and all the letters he wrote to Bruno Bauer were addressed back to him so this would be some like serious political catfishing going on Um, and then I guess out of naivety for a while, I was involved with that kind of thing. And then I just realized like, this is based on a load of lies and that every separatist, oh, not every, the majority of separatists that I knew all had hidden husbands, hidden boyfriends, or were living off their father. And I thought, well, if this is a lifestyle, you kind of have to practice what you preach. But I even thought, well, if they were practicing, if they were practicing what they preached, what would be the point basically? And again, it it came up to this thing of this isn't a strategy um at all and then i uh, yeah so i just now um th- there are really good projects going on in gender critical feminism i think that let women speak is one of them and yeah and uh there's not there's not that much going on on the left here to put my energies into this is also i thought a podcast where, you know I where is here for for, for our audience yeah. the uk the uk so in, in London, but the wider UK, um, the left now is just, I mean, the far left, right? I mean, I'm talking kind of where I'm from uh, politically, just doesn't really exist. And it's done a, a similar thing to what happened to second wave feminism in the, because of the kind of decades of decline, there are now just these kind of uh, very small groups that are more like nostalgia fests. And it's more about having a hobby or supporting a football team, and ra- rather than doing politics, there's been a definite turn away from politics. And also, you know, most of them are so bad on this issue of women's rights. And when they when they aren't bad on it, it's from a class reductionist point of view. So it's really just saying, well, we shouldn't talk about you know um, sex based rights or you know anti racist politics or whatever. We just need class, and that's our. You know, so it's this kind of turgid, economistic, um, yeah, point of view. So even then, it's a bit disingenuous to say that they're gender critical. Just on that, Jen, I have a follow-up there. We're getting into the weeds really early, but in terms of this class thing, I'm fascinated about this. I heard you talking about this, and 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 I feel like we lean, well, we certainly lean on class a little more now than we would because it seems to be... Uh, the only adequate tool or cudgel to get rid of the worst excesses of of the of the kink machines on the far left. So you you, you know one way of sort of getting them to shut up for five minutes is to go well you don't really care about class. And so um, <laughs> what, what what do you think about that idea? Yeah, sure, that's true. It is it is the case that I mean, and um, you know. Zizek says this, he says, well, we can apply postmodernism to everything apart from class. You know, why does no one talk about the micro interactions of class? Um, Or, put, you know, people do actually a bit talk about how class can be 
performative. Um, but yeah, that is good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people will then think that doing class politics is a way to succeed. And I think that once you once the movement is so in decline, the groups that exist and the, the people around those orbits are very concerned about their own existence. And the thing is, is that, you know, talking about, say, having a meeting on um, trans or queer sounds sexy. You can get a lot of, of young people to it. And then you think, well, if we draw in enough young people, our group will be reproduced because they'll still be here in 20, 30 years. So they're really thinking about the the social reproduction of their groups more than, say, getting involved in class struggle. I also think that there has been a bit of a thing where the left is dominated by individuals who are upper middle class or sometimes surprisingly aristocratic. And I'm not taking away from them saying that they, they don't believe what they say, but they're often not the person who's in a position to go on to organize a strike in their workplace, you know, uh, because they don't work. And uh, or they'd be a manager, right? Or they'd be the boss. So, yeah, I mean, you can say that and say we should get back to class, but the, the, some of them will say yes, and we do, and they'll still have a kind of constructing a clubhouse that is really for them and their friends. And to think about the last time there was huge class, class struggle, which was said in the 1980s. And I think that unfortunately, we live in very anti-politics times where there's huge amounts of apathy and a lot of young people are, I suppose are not that uh, interested generally I mean we can blame the internet we can blame Covid for delaying everybody everybody's development by two, three years whatever, it's a whole range of things but I mean, primarily it's, it's neoliberalism and it's very hard to think beyond your own individual needs especially given the economic harsh climate that certainly exists here. I don't know about Australia. Just a point on 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 the class thing. Like, I I, I live here in Melbourne. John, you're you're in Sydney, and and Melbourne is quite a woke a woke city here in, in in Australia. And one thing I've found there's a few sort of people in my orbit that are sort of on the edge of being ultra lefties. They're really into you know a, a lot of uh, self flagellation about indigenous issues, that sort of stuff, racism, and and these people they they drive Priuses. They have quite well-to-do jobs, and sometimes I feel like they they get into this hardcore left stuff just as sort of a cover because they're so well off, or, or maybe they feel guilty that they're fairly well off. But I, I'm not sure which one it is. But I, I mean, have you found that? Oh, of course, it's to justify their position. If you're sat in a you know a, a, a workplace where you have a very high salary and you look around the office and there's only one person there who's not white. Of course, you start to cover yourself in these kind of uh, just anti-racist politics to the point of virtue signaling. It's not like they're actually doing much politics in actuality, right? It's it's just this kind of virtue signaling. There's a very good book by Catherine Liu um, called Virtue Hoarding, uh, The Politics of the PMC. And she talks about the professional managerial class and how they, they, this tendency to do that. But it is. It's... Uh, it's apologism, basically, for themselves. And then it's this idea of looking a certain way or adopting a certain lifestyle. Look, it's the same way that on the left now, you know, I hear about straight weddings where a man marries a woman, but they say it's not a straight wedding because the woman will conveniently say that she's a they, them. Mm. It's a way of saying, look, we're sorry we're boring heterosexuals. But I mean, it's <laughs> fine to be a boring heterosexual. It's much worse to pretend you're not, right? If that's, if that's who you are, have a nice mm. wedding. Um, but I think that, yeah, I've, I've noticed that a lot. And it is a certain strata of people who feel intense labor competition for their cushy jobs. They're also then aware that they got those jobs because of certain privileges, class, race, um, access to education. Nobody cares about, you know, the politics of the kitchen, um, you know, worker at my local pub who washes the dishes every evening. No one's like, did you vote for Brexit or not? What's your politics about indigenous people? You know, whatever, because no one is in competition for that job. Well, what, what always disappoints me is that some of these people, they actually have the means to be able to take some time off work and actually do some stuff that, that might actually make a difference to their community, whether that is sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, I guess something on the political side, but even more grassroots, like actually going to volunteer somewhere or going out to some of these indigenous communities and trying to help or or, or to, to to donate or, or donate their time or whatever. Like, but they never do that. It's only stuff that they can put up on their social media profile. Something that needs a poster, a designed poster in Illustrator. And... That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and an event that they can get together with their other white friends who like to stand around and self-flagellate. And have a smoking ceremony. Have smoking ceremony, all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, it's just so disappointing. Yeah. And in my experience, those people are often under the surface, underneath this kind of veneer of middle class politeness, are the most racist people when it comes to the things that they have power over, whether it's hiring practices or whether it's um, how they treat service workers. It doesn't follow through. And in a way, I mean, I'm not necessarily asking it to in that I don't think, uh, you know, simply that everyone can reconstruct themselves as pure uh, anti-racist, given that we live in a a racist society structurally. Um, But their claims to purity and their claims to superiority, in my experience, they're always the people who do things that when I hear about it, I'm like shocked and don't believe it much more than, say, the average open racist would do, you know? Well, I've got a bit of a boring question, but but one that I think we need to get to sooner rather than later. Some of our listeners might hear the terms Marxism, socialism and communism and sort of lump them all together with vague notions of Soviet Russia or Cuba. Can, can you give us a rough rundown on the differences between these terms? Sure. So Marxism is really the, the philosophy of Karl Marx and and. Frederick Engels, um, including his economic stuff. Um, I mean, he has his own terminology. As as far as I'm aware, you know, even at the LSE, classical economists don't really disagree with Marx. They just have different words for things rather than surplus value. They say profit. They do disagree about the, that you can have ever expanding capitalism. They would say that. They would deny that it's subject to such crisis that, that it is. And they might say that there there isn't this tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But other than that, uh, Marx is is you know economically sound, and it's really his uh, his philosophy um, that informs Marxism. Of course, there's lots of people after there. Someone like Althusser, I think, is very influential on Marxism, and importantly, not neo-Marxism, which is a bit of a, a postmodern arrangement nowadays, as people try to incorporate things like critical race theory and queer theory in order to kind of have ha, fill the gaps of, of things that were, you know, where Marx, uh, things that Marx didn't cover. But in the end, it's just become this postmodern um, arrangement. So Marxism, philosophy, socialism is really meant to be this transitionary period before communism. And there hasn't actually been communism because communism in Marx's idea is eventually the state is so decentralised, you don't have a state. But socialism is, is things are socialised. Things like healthcare. So in the UK, healthcare is socialised. Education is socialised, um, as it is in, in Cuba. Um, and things like housing is socialised. So it's the idea that, yeah, so rather than here, we you know we have council houses, that, that's social housing. Um and it's meant to be that kind of period that eventually where things are nationalised and socialised and eventually there'll be communism. But there's quite a big difference between them. And they're really just uh, political systems. And I think Cuba is a very good example of socialism, more more than so- the Soviet Union, certainly after 1924, certainly after uh, in the later decades. And Venezuela is also quite a good example of socialism um but obviously it's kind of been crushed so the country is a, a basket case but i should give the example that when i was in venezuela in 2008 2009 i went to the the hospital um, i was a bit of a hypochondriac at the time and had a stomach ache so anyway i zoomed down there in a taxi <laughs> with like doctor i think i didn't even say oh, i think i'm dying but i was in pain i mean i was trying to speak spanish anyway i saw despite that they knew it wasn't that urgent right i mean i wasn't i hadn't broken my leg I saw a doctor within 10, 15 minutes. And, and just the difference between that and, say, the, the, the nationalised health care service here, where you wait six hours in A&E. So they prioritise those public services, which is why Cuba, for example, has a high life expectancy in America. Women have a higher social status in terms of uh, health care access and educational obtainment. Um, so, yeah, it's a, 
a different political system. So do you, this is a very short one and a long one, do you identify as a Marxist? Yeah, but I'm I'm not always that interested in political labels because sure. lots of people will say they're Marxists and... You guys seem pretty legit, though. Like, like, like you know, I, 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 I listen to your podcast, and I'm like, no, no, these guys. If these guys use labels, then I'll believe you. You know what I mean? So, so my next question is: since we're going down this route, what, what, do, what do people get wrong about Karl Marx and Marxism? What, are, what are the main things that people get wrong? Well, similar to Freud, people don't actually read him. <laughs> first of all, and so I think that today. There's a misunderstanding amongst trans activists or amongst woke people, whoever they may be, that the idea that Marxism is uh, about equality and an end to hierarchy, these kind of anarchic liberal ideas, actually, that he never espoused. And they they kind of ha- have this idea that it means getting everything that you want. The, the the yoke of capitalistic oppression that makes you go to work. You won't have to go to work anymore and life will be candy floss and rainbows. And this certainly isn't the case. It's really, it's this is not. <laughs> I mean, Marxism is just the idea that capitalism is a very efficient, in many ways, um, you know, system. Marx sang its praises in many ways, but that given the the wealth of production that can happen in capitalism, it could then be distributed more fairly and that the people creating the wealth could own it and decide what happens with it rather than a small minority, you know, famously called the 1% by Bernie Sanders. Uh, it's not the idea that you you don't have to work, though Marx did introduce this category of leisure and the idea that there would be more leisure in the future because people might work less. And I think that people conflate it with... Um, some of the worst experiments in communistic societies where there's this kind of, rather than the, the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is in Cuba, which is where people vote for, you know, someone on their block to go and represent them in parliament or whatever. There's this idea of workers' democracy or the, in the Soviet Union, it really was the Soviets, the unions effectively, uh, running it for a while. They conflate that then with, say, a state where there really is a dictator and what it's like a, a new royal family, right? I mean, North Korea, I think is a good example where it's clearly one powerful family. Um, and though it didn't exactly uh, start off that way, I think that people conflate it with those two, the worst ideas, both this idea of like dictatorships and there's going to be gulags everywhere. And th- then this utopian thinking. And I would say even, on, in socialist groups on the left, there would be this idea that, and it, but it's the same with feminism, right? This utopianism. And I would always try and insert things, scenarios like, look, if a four-year-old's mother gets run over, the psychic damage to that child will be very difficult. And then the socialist would say, oh, but then there'll be collective child rearing and it'll all be fine. And the state won't do such a terrible job that it does now looking after children. Just like, no, you've not you've still not taken into account things like child development, things like attachment. And for me, the appeal of Freud and psychoanalysis was that neither radical feminism nor Marxism incorporates child development and, uh, for want of a better word, psychology. But okay, we'll be specific, say psychoanalysis. So you've read Marx's work, obviously. So so maybe you could tell us about what, what his his writing is actually like, you know, like, well, may, there might have been some people, uh, not us, not us, who want to know what the name of his book is and uh, what it's what his yeah. actual writing is like. So the the most famous one is uh, Capital, Das Kapital in German. Um, volume two is the most notoriously turgid. Volume one, I think, is where everyone should start. I should say that a lot of his writing is very beautiful, though I've heard it's much more beautiful in German and for me, one of the best uh, books that speaks to now is the uh, book called The German Ideology, which he wrote with Engels. And the first couple pages may as well be about trans ideology now. It's all about how if you change the word for something, it doesn't change the thing in itself. And the way that people delude themselves um, with ideas. And it's basically an attack on idealism. So that's the one that I would recommend starting with, honestly, is the German ideology. Now, I, I used to hear the term cultural Marxism used 
as a kind of stand-in word for woke. What, what what's your view on that on that term? As far as I know, it was a bit of an old school um, anti-Semitic term for a while, and then. I think when people mean, I think when people say that, sometimes they mean this idea of kind of lefty teachers or something. But the reality is, is that, say, Marxist education is really just constructivism, right? It's the idea that you don't just do traditional education with kids where they learn and repeat, but that you involve them in constructing um, their own learning. So I just think it must come from a misunderstanding, again, of, of Marxism. And this idea, but you know, there are various panics. People think because of this idea of, say, family abolitionism, that kind of Marxists want to create a culture where your kids will be taken away by the state and brought up in caravans under a regimented routine and, you know, will wave to the the hammer and sickle flag every morning. Um, Really, the idea of family abolition is that uh, mothers bear a disproportionate burden of labour within the home and childcare, and that if there was decent state provisions, so, you know, what East Germany had for, um, still today, I think, uh, nursery from six months, things like social um, programmes, like, you know, like kids clubs, kids kids camps that, that exist in the summer, but you today you just have to have the money to pay for them, right? This idea, though, of kind of social provision like that, and if there were laundries and if there were canteens, it would mean that there are a lot of a lot of the burden of women in the household would be gone. But you then start to raise this idea of, well, this does, in a sense, cut into the family to a be to a large degree. But that's probably a good thing. And I would think I would hope that most feminists would think that it was a good thing to have those as options and alleviate that burden of women in the home. Well, one thing I love about your podcast, well, there's a number of things, but there's there's three episodes that, that you've come out with uh, that are titled, I think it's titled What the Fuck Happened to the Left, which I encourage our listeners to check out. And you've said that the left used to be normal. Broadly speaking, <laughs> how has the left been taken over by weird fetishists, chubby they thems and people with autism? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a strange thing. I think that a lot of the left for a long time would, you know, so groups that would call themselves socialists did really write against and have meetings where they would criticise things like queer theory and post-modernism. And then I think that there was something about the 2010s where a lot of the big socialist groups here lost members that they suddenly kind of it just became a bit of a, you know, how do we keep ourselves going financially? And then it, it just seemed appealing. I mean, I think a lot of the time, I'm, I'm, try, I'm thinking now what Hannah would say, actually, is that a lot of them are Trotskyist groups. And I'm not saying this is necessarily true about Leon Trotsky, but there is there is this idea of the latest thing. And if you can capture the winds of the latest thing, then it can buoy you up and you can take those people on a journey. So you can take the most socially abnormal um, individual, who often, right, there's a lot of them in the mar- in, in any marginal political tendency because they know they'll be welcomed with open arms because they're just so glad for the numbers. It's the same in radical feminism. It's the same on the far left. And the idea that you could take them and then somehow educate them into kind of staunch Bolsheviks. I believe that that was always <laughs> the idea, but it's much more now, you know, the tail wagging the dog. And I think that they've just become really out of touch with the working class. I think, the, but I, I mean, I can only really put it down to a recruitment crisis and also that they have become convinced. It happened in America first. And I remember a friend of mine, who's actually the only friend I ever lost actually about the the trans issue and he was actually an autistic guy addicted to porn um Mm. who's against the age of consent so i think we all know what that means anyway he's very successful writer on the left Uh, anyway i remember he went to a conference in america by a group called international socialist network and they were there they were they don't exist anymore they were the biggest socialist group and he came back and you know this is 2014 he said oh, you know, they were all talking about Foucault and things are much more open there 
and it's much more about critical theory and how you can incorporate that into kind of the stuff we all agree on, the Marxism we can forget about, because we all, you know, we all agree and uh, nothing can be done with it now. And I think that that has happened slowly from America, Canada to the UK, probably Australia. Well, I saw them all at the at the, at the Let Women Speak uh, rally in Sydney. Ricky went to one in Melbourne, and uh, I looked at I, I walked past the the you know the TRAs and their and their people, and I think for me, I looked at them all. They all looked at, look, and this is terrible. I know it's low hanging fruit. You shouldn't make fun of the way people look and stuff like that, but they're all pretty anemic looking, and you know, undernourished, and the, the, to me. The the group that summed it up was the 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 sort of the drama school rejects in a circle, like doing some sort of weird dance, throwing orange and black hankies to each other, and like make doing some chant. And I was just looking at him, going, "This is not the best and brightest of the left." Well, yeah, I, I remember the days when, if the the I was in this group called the Socialist Workers Party. If ever any of the central committee, this is the the top committee uh, in in the organisation was invited onto TV. They would go purposefully in like a tracksuit to try and look like a kind of every man who might be at home during the day watching TV. And I always used to have people say to me, "Wait, you're in the SWP?" And I'd say, "Yeah," and they'd be really surprised. And it was because I was normal. But I also started <laughs> to notice. I also did. I also did start to notice that other people would say. And they were suspicious about it. Like, why do you run the film society? Why are you captain of the basketball team? And I'd say, well, I have hobbies and interests outside of this. But for a lot of people, it was a, a lifestyle. And I think increasingly, for a lot of people, and look, young young people today are really bizarrely underdeveloped. Like, I meet 23, 24-year-olds who've never had a relationship, who've never had sex. And I just think, what, you've just been in your bedroom on the internet for years. And it's it's true. And I think there's a lot of individuals, whether they're young, actually, or whether they're a bit older, that see this as a way to have friends if you can't make friends otherwise. Um, by, by this, I mean transactivism. Um, find, yeah, social connection. Find, a, a, get a life, basically. People who can't create meaningful lives for themselves then can kind of tag along with this. And unfortunately, because those people usually are quite socially poor because they're disturbed and whatever else, they have problems, that then feeds into the politics. And then you have these these people that are, you know, feel carte blanche to go around terrorizing people, not even realizing how bad it makes them look, but that this isn't this isn't politics, this is you taking your problems in life out on others. So I think there's something there. I also saw, Jen, I don't know if you've seen this as well. I'll get off the trans stuff in a second. It's just, it, it's you know, we thought we could get away with not talking about it all the time. But so <laughs> I don't know if you saw, you see this 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 group of people. It's at, at the event I saw, I'm sure I saw more than one set of these people. It's like a, a, a trans identifying male, uh, you know, young, sort of big-ish, you know, on the chubbier side or whatever, and then a coterie of his handmaidens around him, like like like, and he's the, yes, yes. the leader of the gang, and mm -hmm. he's got these chicks that he's dominating, and they're just and he's telling them like, you know, aren't I a beautiful woman? And then they're going, yes, you are. Have you seen this this gang? I have seen that kind of thing. Look, I think that to use, I, I don't know if you've heard, uh, you know, FDS Female Dating Strategy Podcast. You must have heard of it. Sounds no, no. no? Sounds good. Oh, it's a great podcast. Anyway, they have these categories, and I think these categories are fair, but they sound a bit harsh. But there's a lot of low-value women who find it very hard to get male attention, and look, you know, it's really kind of knowing the sorts of women in feminism that I wouldn't always be friends with that made me realize that a lot of women want male attention. Actually, it's like some of them; it's their key thing in life, especially when they're young, right? Anyway, this is a way to have male attention and find, you know, he will be a low-value man himself, and that's his only way to get female attention. So it becomes quite perfect. He can pretend he's a sex god and has a harem of weirdos, and they will be really... <laughs> and, and they will be really pleased when he, like, sexed them at 3 a.m. in the morning. 
and they'll just try and, you know, pretend that he's not also sexting everybody else. So this is kind of a, a mutual. <laughs> so he puts on this, he's got the dress on, he's doing all this, but then it's still 3am, you up, you know, like still just <laughs> old fashioned. Yeah. yeah. The veil drops, you up. Exactly. So I look, I should, you know what, there is something here to be said about, um, again, just to bring up, it's because my, my PhD was on Freud, so this is why I end up thinking about it a lot. He said that a perversion is a negative of a symptom. And what he meant by perversion was anything other than intercourse. And he's not saying that that's wrong. He was trying to point out that everybody engages in sexual acts that isn't just to produce a baby and that that's normal, actually. And this is where he came up with this universal theory of of perversion. Um, I do think that a lot of people who have a symptom, who are quite unwell, sometimes try to address that through their the area of sexuality and the first time i was alerted to this is a friend of mine was on the lgbt national union of students bureaucratic committee he just likes being a bureaucrat i don't know why but he he did and he would help run the conferences and he said you know jen the vast vast majority of students who come to this conference are mentally ill because they tick on the form so he knew these statistics I said, well, I just don't think most gay people are mentally ill. That's so strange. And he said, we have to have a big room that is like a safe space room. And I walk in there sometimes and there's just young people like screaming, crying and rocking. And I don't know if it's performative or not. I don't know if I should call a psychiatrist or not. But a lot of this is about you know, running a conference to keep these people at bay. They'll run to the front and say, I have an allergy to orange juice. Have you checked that everybody here doesn't have orange juice? And he'll have to say, well, you know, you should have put that on the form. Um, And I came to the conclusion that the kind of people that would be interested in this realm, and it's the same with BDSM, in the realm of wacky sexuality, often are they are in, uh, they're interested in it because they're trying to work out their own psychological problems it's the same with bdsm well i've got a, got a question about leftist men for you here and and i'd like to know why leftist men are so tough to take you know i think about people like owen jones you know they come across as, as as whiny white knights you know is it is it possible to be a man on the left and and not be an annoying twat well i don't know about nowadays um i would say that there are still quite a lot of men who are on the socialist left and they're either privately GC or a bit more open and they kind of get away with it a bit more because they're men. Um, then I would say that there's a category that just has never thought that women's rights was important. I mean, I recently came to the conclusion that if the vote was taken away from women in this country, I don't think the vast majority of men on the left would care and I mean, I really think that's true. Like something very basic, like the vote, and they just say, oh, this is a, bo-, they'd have an explanation. This is a bourgeois electoral thing anyway, <laughs> you know, as if uh, voting uh, isn't important in a liberal democracy. And I think that men like Owen Jones are a bit of a special case because I think that he spends a lot of time trying to seem um, very trad. Like, you know, I'm just a gay man who has monogamous relationships, which isn't true, um, and that he's sexually boring um, and this kind of thing. And I think that for, for them, for, him, for, for, get, for those gay men on the, on the far left that are just some of the most vicious about the trans stuff, for them, it's because women are critiquing this as uh, pointing out that for many men it's a fetish. And then I think they start to feel like that could very quickly um be turned on me or so it's it's something like that i think that they're worried about the idea that if you stigmatize um autogynophiliacs that then they would be next or there's something like that happening um so i think that's a special category that i would also put say that mp here um lloyd russell moyle um because they really react especially about any critique of sexuality and i but i still think that it's about any curtailment of male sexual right is seen to them as an ex- as an existential threat to their own sexual sexual rights, basically, and the ability to go and have sex with whoever whoever they want. But by and large, on the left, yeah, I mean, it just sort of shocks me. And the thing that I find 
difficult is that, say, r- men that are right-wing, quote-unquote, or considered right-wing, say someone like Jordan Peterson, I could have a much better conversation with him, even if we came to very different conclusions. But because we both agree on the terms, we can actually have a discussion and work something out, say, and see each other's perspective. Whereas I just find that, you know, especially because men on the left are so traditional, actually, this is what the cover story, this is partly why they say the, you know, the left says that they buy all this crazy sexual stuff like BDSM and sex positivity and that porn and brothels, mm. you know, are wonderful and we should have porn on every advert at every sex work. sex work is real work. Yeah, all of that um, attempt to incorporate it into kind of cobbled uh, workers' rights and socialist theory. Actually, left-wing, on, left-wing men, they get married, they name their children after themselves, and they don't have sex outside their relationships. <laughs> no, seriously, they're the most traditional, and that's their covers. It's it's distraction, basically. Um, the same way on the right. The right wing are always embroiled in sex scandals, but they preach marriage, monogamy, and, you know, remaining a virgin until you're 32 or whatever, and they're doing the opposite. Well, what, what about some of these young heterosexual men on the left, though? I mean, are they are they just in it as a sort of a woke fishing thing where they can... I don't know, get, get get a bit of action on campus or, you know, I mean, what, what do you think about that? I would say the ones around uh, trans stuff and queer, yeah, definitely. It's it's low-value men who are just trying to look like, oh, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I'm so thoughtful. Maybe I'm queer or whatever, you know. Um, to kind of get, get, get <laughs> I'm going to begin the podcast like that from now yeah. on. <laughs> Maybe I'm queer. Get get women to lower their uh, get women to lower their guard a bit, and then I think there's some men who, for them, it's just brocialism. I mean, honestly, just the if you take the Communist Party of Britain here, there are all male branches. A lot of it is just having a club for you and your boys. I I just think that all of these people are they're interested in something for themselves today because it, it's hard for these these things to go someplace. I don't think that they even really see much of a bigger picture beyond benefit to their own immediate lives. Now, this is the last question I have on male sexuality because it does seem perverse to get you on here and just to de- deluge you with these, these male <laughs> questions. So, anyway, <laughs> anyway, Jen, what do you think of uh, big dudes? You know, like it's just a bit bit much. So um, the question I have is you talk about uh, this on your podcast. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Can you talk about how male sexuality ruins everything? So th- this idea really resonated with me. The, 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 the stories you guys told of, of socialist networks that have been, have, have been set up uh, and, and been uh, completely brought down in typical fashion by basically a powerful dude who's not out for the collective but just a collective of hot young chicks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not that I think that groups are constructed for that purpose, certainly not in the past, but I think that there often becomes a kind of one or a couple or, you know, very powerful men within an organisation who then have access to young people, you know, in the youth groups. And I think that they essentially, there isn't much oversight and they have such clout within the party that they end up sort of destroying it through sexual activity with teenagers, often violent. And this happens time and time again. Um, Jerry Healy is a very uh, is a figure to, to Google on this. He actually used party offices to rape women and carried that on for a very long time. Um, the SWP had its own version of that. And I even know, you know, there was a really good project called London to Calais, that was, you know, basically taking um, food for people in the Calais refugee camp. And the guy that started that, it collapsed because he was, I mean, I think he was married, but he, and he basically had a bunch of kind of student girlfriends. And then they, you know, and he was really controlling and wouldn't let them um, speak to other men. And then they all kind of got together and found out about this and, and wrote a thing saying, um, you know, what he'd done or whatever. So the, the, it's really, I find it really incredible that there is n- there really isn't a sexual politics on the left that is critical of sexual practices at all. And despite the fact that that seems to be the biggest threat to these organisations. So, for example, I, I left the SWP over um, a member of the Central Committee 
sexually assaulting uh, and raping two teenage girls. And then I joined this thing called, I think it was the our version of the ISN network. And then the same thing kind of happened again. There was like a weird split. If you want to look it up, it was called the, the kinky racist chair split. And I didn't leave over that purposefully. That sounds like something it, I would make up I'm, on I'm this Googling podcast. it now. To Google it. So my friend who I mentioned <laughs> earlier, who was the autistic guy who was addicted to porn, he was in this group and he said it, it, there was a, a exhibit in London where black women were made into chairs that you like sit on. It was the, the like furniture. And of course, there was some criticism of this, that it was racist, that it was misogynistic. But because it has, he said, well, this is a kink, right? And so it's this idea that as soon as you say it's something okay, is Exactly. As soon as you say something to do with sexuality, it's fine because that's the one thing that cannot be curtailed. And then there was this split over the kinky chair, over the racist kinky chair. And I wanted to leave at this time, but I was like, I can't be seen to leave with these weirdos. So I, I waited about a month after they wrote their letter about how appalled they were that they didn't get to sit on black women when they wanted or whatever it is they, they were fighting for. And so a dozen of them left, and then I kind of just privately left this bonfire after a month. And then eventually the whole group folded because some guy was accused of sexually assaulting a woman in a bathroom, and then they did a kangaroo court. This is what they always try and do, and this is always what really indicts them, is that they're so bad at metering out their own justice. There was a kind of investigative committee uh, formed, and it included his sister. And it was the exact same thing that had happened with the SWP, where there'd been an investigation to this guy, but it included like his best friend. So it's just like a farce that goes round and round. And but yeah, what, Jen, what 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 is the, the the at the heart of this? Why can the left not control their men? Why why can't they just? Why are they so affronted by the idea of there being absolutely any limits? Like, and and this is a really uh, you know, online too much example, but but if you take uh, in America, Jeffrey Tubin, you know, is caught uh, whacking off on on a Zoom call with exactly the person you don't want to be whacking off in front of, and that's uh, uh, Masha Gessen. Uh, like, you know, she's not down. I can tell you, she would not be down with that. And so, um, it, but then he's back on air in like two minutes. And the only reason I bring up that you've, you've given all these really great grassroots examples, but I see that them being completely everything in the middle, all the way up to that, the very heart. I reckon someone at the New York times could have a grotesque kink or do something like this, like, like aggress a woman or do something awful. Well, Don Lemon's done a bit of this stuff as well. I know I'm talking about all these American people, but, 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 uh, what is at the heart of this, this, uh, uh, sexuality problem that the left has? Is it exclusive to the left? Because I would say it becomes a scandal on the left a bit because they are the ones that say we want to liberate this oppressive society and they kind of put themselves up there with this superior way of of future living or whatever. And I think that, I don't know, if it just on the right, it's more private. It's locker I mean, room talk. It's uh, not proud of it, but it is things people say. And that's what uh, the Donald said. So, like, maybe it's a way of he's just said, you know, well, we don't know what went on I, there. But I think that's, that, that, you know, yeah. do you think that, that, that the people on the right, like, you know, could get away with the same thing? Do you think you could have someone on the right? My guess would be that there are stop measures. I think that the, the political right wing are very organised. I think that they're much more serious because, I don't know, they feel the winds of history are blowing in their direction or whatever. And I think that when a man starts to be a problem in that way, certainly this is what it's like in the Tories here, he is very quickly ousted. And they kind of operate like sharks, which is if you smell blood, you attack and that's it. The left doesn't have organisations with much oversight. And however big they get, however big these fantasies of, of revolution grow, I think that they never really feel accountability or in touch with the mainstream to the point where you think, you know, this is a problem, we need to shut it down. That would be my guess, is that left-wing men are not necessarily peculiar. I just think that it's much more tolerated. And I think partly that's probably because they haven't gotten over, you know, the stuff in the sexual revolution and this idea that 
you know, like William Reich is quite a, f- uh, a famous guy that tried to kind of merge Freud and Marx, and this has been done for a while, and he misunderstood Freud and said, oh, you'll be happy if you just get less repressed and you have loads of, all, all the sex that you want, you act it out, which is kind of the opposite, actually, of what Freud said. Um, but I think that they follow that kind of thing. So the way that it was explained to me about this man in this SWP, this middle-aged guy who was sexually abusing teenage girls was, well, it's moralism for you to, you know, have a problem with the age gap. And I just said, sorry, a man in his 50s with a 16-year-old girl is taking fucking advantage, even if it's quote-unquote consensual. This is not something that should be done. And then it was, oh, but that's moralism. They use this this term moralism a lot, whether it's arguing against the age of consent or justifying you know, all kinds of things, racist chairs. All sex stuff, all, all sense experience sex stuff where they're like, you know, you, you know Jen, you, you're really getting in the way of, of you've been a buzzkill, all right? Just let me, I've got, we're going to, the, we're doing the marches, we're doing all that, the handing out the leaflets. If you won't let me get my end away, then this whole revolution is over. Yeah, ex- exactly. But but why is the left today so oblivious to the harms being done by the sex work is is, is real work mantra you know that and the whole sex positivity movement you know they don't seem to see a difference between someone selling nudes on OnlyFans and say a prostitute servicing thirty odd blokes a day you know yeah I would say ultimately they don't care from two directions the first one is they just don't care about women I mean to the point where I think if any, I remember having a, a friend when I was younger in the socialist group that was a bit of a feminist, and as soon as anyone kind of knew that, they just sort of wrote her off, carved her out, and she hadn't even said, you know, what her, her feminist politics were. I think that they absolutely want to sideline any feminist concern or any concern of women, and I also think that they believe in this kind of stupid, kind of workerist idea that if we can just turn everything into labour and subsume everything into labour and we can make everything a form of work, then somehow we can then change the world by going on strike. And it's like, you know, Marxism painting by numbers. Uh, And that's where it it, it comes from, you know. I, I really think that that is... But, but you know, I mean, if you say to them, OK, well, well there's, let's form a union... Um, for prostituted women, what would be the benefits in terms of better working conditions? What, a softer mattress? I mean, women already have, like, numbing cream. They already get drunk or take drugs so they can disassociate. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, are we going to open, like, BDSM torture parlors soon where, like, Karen, who works in the office, can do a shift in the torture parlor in the evening? And what's your solution? Well... I don't know. Yeah, give her some drugs so she can disassociate, or that the the person torturing her can be polite. They they never really get into those kinds of conversations. And the thing that's crazy is that another group that split from the SWP. I actually know a woman in in that group that then bought into this, became or started prostituting herself, thinking that she could you know make a lot of money and. From what I've heard, she does now have, you know, PTSD, probably complex PTSD. And a friend of mine so tried to have a relationship with her and he was like, she's just now romantically and sexually bonkers. I think she's really ill. She didn't used to be. And I remember saying, no, I knew her years ago. She was just a very normal, normal woman. So even the the kind of, um, you know, collateral that they can see in their own lives I think they just don't care, and it's just a way to bang on about workerism to pretend that everything everything can work. And uh, I know that in my PhD department, which was very a, lo- a lot of Marxists, just the kind of arguments you get into, where I try and say labor can't explain everything, and that's fine. We don't need to systematize everything. Care work isn't all just labor, you know. But the, there is this this need to fit everything into that model. Are you surprised that there are so many female feminists that are on board with with this sex work is is real work mantra? Are there a lot of actual feminists? I'm not sure. I, I feel like that 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 there 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 is a, a a section of the feminist community. It's a shocking that... idea, and to hear it at all to me is is shocking. So when I, when I see it 
pasted a few times, and it could all be Russian hacking farms. But but when I see this idea out there, I'm like, well, that's that's not an, like I couldn't Im- imagine wanting anyone in my family t- to do sex work. Because isn't you know that I mean? kind of wrapped up with the with the slut walk sort of phenomenon as well? I mean, wouldn't they be down with you know sex workers' real work? I would say that as part of the liberalisation of the left there is a huge liberalisation of feminism and that liberal feminism has been the dominant form for a very long time. And those can, of course, incorporate those ideas the same way that I remember the slut walks and thinking, do I support this? Do I not? Women are in the street holding signs. But then I kind of think saying I'm a slut isn't great for women's status. And Gail Dines, who is herself um, a, a socialist or Marxist feminist, I think, she says, look, you can measure the efficacy of these things as to whether it would help women at the bottom of society. And she gave the example of the uh, the victim of um, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, the maid in New York that he he raped. She was mi- a migrant. She was black. Um, she had, you know, I, I think she had some uh, difficulty with her immigration status, a kind of, uh, you know, a poor low-paid worker. Would it help her rape case? to walk around the street with, I'm a slut on a sign. No, it wouldn't. So therefore, but I think that a lot of, a lot of people comes, a lot of women call themselves feminists because it's popular to do so. And then there's just this idea of, well, anything a woman wants to do, this idea of self-empowerment and choice and agency, anything a woman wants to do is great because she wants to do it, including walking into traffic, you know, and there's this denial and it, it comes from liberalism, right? This, this idea that, Things in of themselves aren't harmful, that it's not being, you know, addicted to drugs that is harmful. It's just the stigma around it and that being mentally ill is great. It's just the stigma around it. And I think we've gotten away from that there are objective harms, prostitution, mental illness, drug addiction. These are objectively harmful. And it's almost like that conversation now, they say, oh, but you're shaming. It's like, I'm not. I'm, I'm living in reality and saying this is a terrible thing. And I, I think that a lot of people have really greased their careers with this. I know that there, it was he at Sussex as an academic who wrote about how migrant children, this is a queer theorist, he said that migrant children in the Calais refugee camp having sex with truckers, this is Syrian children, uh, having sex with truckers for money are expressing their like queer, and whatever it was, their queer embodiment or their queer subjectivity through this and this is this is literally you know about um children that are so poor um they're prostituting themselves on the streets was that I, an essay? did you say that was an academic paper or was that someone just presenting those ideas no it's an academic paper okay. and the idea that the left who was always considered itself again like the people that say hey we know a better way to run society and society's not fair and we could all live much happier lives and we could have a fair, you know, fairer distribution of wealth. All these kind of high ideals are the same ones that are so clearly putting any kind of moral compass in the bin. It is really, it's very confusing. Um, but I, to get back to the question, I think this thing about feminists saying that, like Sylvia Federici, who's very good, held a sign saying sex work is work. I think that she probably won't quite know what that means. She'll think it's related to the, um, What's it called? It was like housewives work is work campaign. Um, but I think that anybody serious, I don't, I don't know of anyone who's, who's really a feminist that, that buys into that other than, and it's just liberal feminists really. Yeah. I, I got the feeling from your, your podcast that, that you're a little bit disappointed by the treatment of women within communism, uh, but also what women inside the political movement are willing to put up with now you've already touched on this already, as you you know you've sort of highlighted that a, a lot of the people that are into communism or socialism are dudes, but m- maybe you could unpack what communism offers women. Do you mean what offers women in communist groups or communism itself or both? Communism itself, I think. Okay, so it's hard to imagine a society that's communistic because this idea of collective democracy or whatever else. So it's better. I would just say. I'll just describe what I think socialism, a socialist society has to offer, and then I suppose a communistic society would have more of that. But it, it is this idea of the alleviation of um, labour inside the home, 
So things like laundrettes where you take your washing to be done and then a worker does it. Um, if you don't want to make dinner that night, there's a free canteen on every block where you can take your family for dinner so you don't have to you know, spend an hour um, preparing food or whatever. I think that things like nursery provision from six months is is great. Uh, it's something that has happened as, as an option, not something that's mandatory. Um, I think that, yeah, the alleviation for women in the home. I also know from history, I mean, look, you know, when North Korea was first founded, they, hu they hung pimps and pornographers. Um, China, actually, because my friend tweeted about it for her birthday, hung three paedophiles, right? Even this idea of recognising that things like rape and paedophilia are um, worth the death penalty and in many ways are worse than, worse than murder, those actually in the global south... Those often accompany socialist politics or kind of communistic ideals and that we want to live in a safe society with actual values and that the people who are the most vulnerable uh, should be the most protected. So the global north is not even a great way, you know, it's not a, a great way to have insight into whether socialism in practice or kind of what socialists want and believe. But for me, I think even if this question of, you know, feminists got all of these provisions, we would end up living in a bit of a socialised society because things like food, uh, laundry um, and, and other things would be supported by the state. Well, Jen, I want to give you the last word here. So I have a question for you. Can the left be saved from the kink machines and freaks who believe that yarning is racist? I, I'm sure there are people desperate to rejoin the fold but are still so repulsed by the faculty lounge politics of the modern left. Mm. In the global north, probably not. I mean, I'm kind of doom-pilled on this question, as the Gen Zs like to say. Uh, in the global north, I don't see any sign of that being possible and I don't really think that women should waste their time trying to salvage the left and I think it's often an exercise in masochism and eating shit and you just have to at a certain point being like I'm not going to put my energies towards this when it's just kind of taking uh, away from me and doesn't have a prospect uh, for, for women in mind and it is you know unfortunately in this country it is the left that wants to obliterate women's rights I and mean, we can call them the liberal left we can say they're radical liberals they're infantile leftists and all of that is true but it's still, those people have kind of captured all of the, the organs of the left, say, the ones that still exist. And uh, yeah, I just don't want to waste my time with it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what what's the future then? I mean, is it is it about starting, a, you know, a different group, a different organisation? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing that these things tend to not, you can't really do them off your own bat. I think that in regard to radical feminism uh kelly j Keene's let women speak actually she did come across a strategy for radical feminism and i don't think it had one before clearly what she's doing is cutting through to many layers of women and i think that when she does a political party that's kind of single issue i think it could do very well in regard to the left the left is always kind of two three years behind anyway i'm not sure there's anything there and i just think I mean, you know, I have been involved with kind of doing politics for, what, 15 years? I just don't want to give it more of my energy where it's like I'm the one doing everything. So even if I started a group and said, OK, here's my flag, please, sane left people, join, because even the left sane people today are often involved with the left for things we talked about earlier, lifestyle, friends, lovers, having a social group, it's not like you can just then attract the serious people. Um, and, yeah, I just would feel like it was uh, standing against the tide a bit. But I, I certainly do think that, you know, if something does come up, I know that the people often will get involved with a, stri a strike in their workplace or a, a campaign, say, on a housing estate. All those things are still very good. But a lot of the time you just bypass the, the so-called organised left today to be able to get on with anything.
Well, Jen, uh, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. Uh, there's one more question we ask everyone, and I know you're going to have a good answer to this. We'd love to know what you're reading right now. Okay. So I'm reading Sylvia Federici's uh, book called, I think it's Witches and Witch Hunts. And the reason why it's great is it's a very abrigged version of her very famous book, Caliban and the Witch, which is a particularly kind of laborious read about how uh, how the transition from feudalism to capitalism needed to involve the witch hunts because it was about not just the enclosure of land, but the enclosure of women um, who would often live in extended families or have kind of women's social groups a lot more. And it was about kind of the transition of forcing women into the home and getting rid of the kind of women who that was not going to be possible with and might reproduce um, a tendency that doesn't fit in with that. And she does in this Witches and Witch Hunts book talk a bit about transphobia but what's kind of funny is the next book she brought out was on the body and because it was about the body she just got cancelled <laughs> so I'm sure she really regrets talking about that in this book before she was uh cancelled by all these people so I'm reading that and I'm also trying to read Victorian Victoria Dutchman Smith's book Hags which is about the specific kind of prejudice and discrimination that middle-aged and older women face Yes, um, I'm trying to get her on the podcast. Oh, I'm sure she'll do it. I'm sure well, she'll do it. I've, yes, I could, you know, I've, I've, I, I got through to the pub. This is, it's all, I always can put it, take out the trash at the end of the podcast. If only the hardcore people are still listening. I tell you what, these publishers, this is for you, Jen. I know you're going to write a great book one day. Um, now, uh, publishers never hook me up, ever. Authors always say yes. Or, or when I get to the author, they're like, I'll be there. And they're always there publishers they never ever deliver they're the worst and i kind of hate them and i say it. yeah i see i know what you mean but you can just go straight to the person right yeah but like she you know they, they she's got a wall this is an example of no dms no nothing and then it's like you know like they, they've got a site with no contact it's hook us up jen i will okay i'll send her we're face we're facebook friends i'll send her a facebook message that's good. My tactic is to moan to people like you and to get you to do it because I'm a man. See, I did what all those guys in your groups have done. I've just stood over you and said, do my bidding. But thank you very much, Jen. I really do. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, Jen, just before we let you go, uh, how can people follow you? Are you on social media? I am. I'm on Twitter as Dr. Jen Isaacson. They should also follow Red Femme Pod. And those are probably, unless you want to see my holiday photos on Instagram, <laughs> it's really Twitter's the best place. I don't. I barely use Facebook anymore. It's a, a dying platform, so Twitter's the best place. I encourage everyone to listen to this to, to Jen's podcast. It is it is entertaining and it is, funny yes. and and totally authentic. And that's why I think it's going to be massive, real, real soon. Hope so. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.